John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 566.EZ1321, certificate number 34366, Hanky Codes. My baby does the hanky Hanky code is a uh, is a topic that seems tailor made for omnibus, and it's been suggested to us uh, more than a handful of times by people who think we're gay, who have who have uh, good ideas for us and for our shows. We get, by the way, we get an astounding waterfall of good ideas. So many great ideas. People do understand the aesthetic because we get dozens of great show topics a week. And often it's stuff you and I already have, have on the, in the file. And Hanky Codes were a thing that I thought would be a great show, uh, from the inception of the, of the program. And, um, and Hanky Codes are a great show. Let me just foreshadow this show by saying it's going to be great. It's going to be the best one, but there are a couple of things a lot. This happens to us both a lot when we start to research a topic for the show. Either we find something a lot more interesting that uh, that pops up in our research and it diverts us into a new topic, or we find that a topic is much deeper, broader, troubling. You know, something happens where what what started off as a like a a light and it was a lark, breezy lark, and then halfway down the Wikipedia page, it turned problematic. Right, or I mean, I, I started to do a show on George Washington's teeth, which I still will do, but the but George Washington's teeth are not as funny as they sound at first. Now I'm curious <laughs> as to know what bummed you out about George. I can't, I can't wait. Well, 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 that will be a very very. We'll get, get to that very soon. But uh, hanky codes, which are a part of gay culture. Uh, I I want to say a couple of things up front. One of them is we're going to be talking about um, a lot of different sexual practices on this show that might not be uh, for everyone's. I mean, if you tip, if you typically listen to Omnibus Project at dinner, uh, there are probably a thousand episodes, or, or we haven't done a thousand episodes, but 
at least 50 of our episodes you shouldn't have listened to at dinner time. Yeah, like the one about um, chewing an onion 700 times. That's not a thing to listen to at dinner. Terrible dinner time idea. But a lot of people listen to Omnibus with their kids, I'm, I'm hoping. We, we tend to, to not put swears in for that reason. We bleep the swears because I love a good bleeped swear. You do love a, you love a, You put bleeps in even when we're not swearing just because you love the joke. Oh, yeah. I think bleeps are f***ing awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but if you uh, if you are listening to this with your kids, it, it may uh, some questions may arise about what things mean and what things are. So you can judge in advance whether or not this is uh, this is appropriate for your teen listener. Whether the cruisiest omnibus ever right. is right for your family uh, car ride. But also, we're talking about a topic that is very specific to gay culture, and in a lot of ways, very specific to male gay cruising culture of a a pretty limited time period, really the seventies and eighties, but Uh, early eighties, early eighties. Right. But, um, but the symbolism of it has become, uh, uh, has taken on a greater significance because gay culture now is looking back at itself and, 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 Kind of thinking of cultural practices, thinking of its recent history, and um, hanky codes in a way are are more significant as a symbol than they ever were as a actual practice. Because it was a for one thing, it was a very narrow chronological window. It was a very short about. chronological it, period. I mean, it was. A, if you'll forgive the expression, it was a seminal period. <laughs> But there's going to be so much of that in this episode. Also, if you are if you are injured by Ken's puns and innuendo, don't listen to this because this is just a it's a it's going to be a field. Day You're going to drive your car off the road just to you will have lost your will to live. But it is important to note that you and I are both cis and straight, and we're talking about uh, we're talking about gay culture and something that's intrinsic to an aspect of it, and we are tourists in this space we are and we're we don't want to orientalize it we don't want to we certainly don't we're not intending to snicker you know this is we're we're very conscious of the fact that this we're talking about american gay culture as uh in some ways as cultural anthropologists which is a bit you know can can be a troubling uh place to look at something sure there's no there's no shortage of podcasts that would discuss this from an insider's point of view, right. and we cannot pretend to that. And so we're, you know, we are, uh, we're encoding this on behalf of futurelings, and we're doing it conscious of our limitations as cultural translators. But it is part of American culture, and it is part of world culture. And you told me that you thought you could not look away from this once you realize what a perfect omnibus topic it was. And I'm interested in in what about the omnibus aesthetic called out to you when you were thinking about hanky coats. Well, you know, you know, in in one way I when I was a young man in my uh late teens and early 20s in the late 80s early 90s, I found myself when I moved to Seattle and became part of the the um alternative cultural milieu of the of that time and in that place, I became a you know a, a participant a member of what i think we would now call queer culture right it was a a lot of this symbolism a lot of the stuff that it symbolizes 
was just part of my early 20s the, and mid-20s. The, the center of Seattle youth culture, I mean, less so now, but certainly then, was and is the the gayborhood. Right. The, the, also the center of Seattle queer culture. Capitol Hill, Broadway, the, uh, the, this is where I worked, this is where I lived, this is, um, this is where I made music, and alternative music, alternative theater, and gay culture were so interwoven with one another. And it was part of the feeling of um, of the artistic liberation of the moment. And it's funny to look back now and think that Broadway, just seeing Broadway, it implied gay in 1991. Well, in Seattle. In Seattle. I mean, in, right. New, in New York, it's always... Greenwich Village. No, Broadway has always implied gay. (laughs) Also Broadway in a different way. (laughs) In a different way. But it it speaks to the fact that there have always been codes associated with being gay. Because as as is evident, there is no visible sign when looking at a fellow human being that would indicate their sexual orientation. You can't just look at someone... and and in to the degree you can look at someone and tell what you're interpreting are codes P- people people's mannerisms people's way of dress or way of of performance and and it is performance it's yeah. it's there's nothing i believe there's a good amount of research on you know signif- you know gaydar signifiers that we notice and how they're all just none of them are inherent or innate in any way right like they are all stuff that the culture has chosen and in different parts of the world, there are different signs. Different signs, and th- and this goes back to prehistory, right? There, there have always been. There's always been a need, and 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 it transcends just gay culture. We're signaling and performing to each other all the time to indicate who we are, how we'd like to be treated, how we would like to, uh, uh, how how we expect to be um, perceived. It's just that within gay culture, there's always been. Uh, an intrinsic danger associated with being recognized as gay by someone who isn't. Yes, because the math works the other way as well. There's no way to tell for sure who is signaling straight. It's just that in a culture that has decided uh, that there must be something clandestine about being, you know, a society that disapproves of gay people, then we chose that clandestine nature for them. You know, I think nowadays you often see a certain kind of conservative sneering about you know the underground demi and the 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 promiscuous bathhouse world but really that's something that conservative america created <laughs> by virtue of how it decided to treat gay people well created out of its imagination because uh, <laughs> of a lot of fascination right there's but, that too but also uh, uh, signaling is maybe more than anything else uh, evidence that I mean, if sexuality was binary and there were straights and gays... Like star-bellied snitches and, and regular snitches. Then signaling wouldn't need to be very sophisticated. You could just... All you'd have to do is like... You could do it with a binary circuit. Right. Computers could be gay or straight. Yes, no. But in fact, it has to be sophisticated because there are a lot of people out there and, and always have been who are unsure or who are... And it's not just a single spectrum. Right. There's multiple axes, right? There's n-dimensional things you would want to signal beyond just where you are on the Kinsey scale. But also, if you in, if you add in the fact that there's a lot of repression 
because of the stigma. Mm-hmm. So you have a you have people who are having feelings across a broad scale, and then you add in the z-axis of a, a scale of acceptance. Then signaling becomes extremely important because even if you do recognize someone as sharing potentially sharing a proclivity, you cannot be sure whether they are out to themselves. Right. Uh, yeah. There, there's both things. Right. Like, so so you you know you you have to you have to have a gradual sort of discovery, a process of discovery. Like, hello, you know, is your wife a goer? Know what I mean? Nudge, nudge. Uh, and so so. Throughout history, there have been subtle and not so subtle signaling, and there's a there's a convincing argument to be made that gay culture has always found an expression within the priestly class. We uh, we associate gay priests with a kind of uh, you know twentieth century, maybe nineteenth and twentieth century ugliness. Uh, and an idea that, you know, celibacy was the only viable option for a certain kind of religious person who had no interest in heterosexual marriage. Right. And that that an, inf- that an enforced celibacy and a kind of, uh, and that the church was a place for, a, a safe place for gay men. Um, the, there's a, a thousand reasons why. What ended up happening was that, in particular, the Catholic Church became a place for predatory people, um, not uh, by any means universally, but uh, but you know that that wa- that became a safe haven for a very small percentage of people that had uh, this predatory desire for maybe related reasons, but not identical ones. Right. But all the way back to ancient time, there's a suggestion that priestliness. Um, that that to be a, a a figure even in a tribal context that had the kind of uh, inspired in a way performative even camp uh, kind of relationship with the supernatural, but but uh, but an other you know a kind of non. It was a place within cultures where a gay person could find a role in a small tribe that would uh, that would acknowledge and excuse a lack of interest in in a, a sort of a mated, mated couple's relationship in a childbearing relationship. There was a job, even in a small group of people, for someone who uh, who needed a, a different role other than husband and hunter. It's interesting that it has to be a relationship with the divine or supernatural, though. I mean, couldn't you just as easily say, well, I'm not really interested in having a wife and kids. I'm going to be the guy in the village who's really interested in the fishing nets. Not, not, in, not so much uh, that, that there's a, um, that it has to be, but that it is. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's something extra about, you know, are, because you're not bound to what the responsibilities of of well, home and hearth because you don't have a wife and kid i think there's an aspect of it that is uh that's performative 
right? That this is a, um, and not not to say that you, that, you don't have a drama club in your village, so, <laughs> so you get to do the the rain dances, and right? Stuff? Not not to say that that there's something intrinsically uh, performance oriented about a, a sexual orientation, but that there is that um, there is a connection to. A uh, because I think in, in I think in what you would we would describe as primitive culture, to be gay is to transcend male and female, which is one of the basic sort of uh, building blocks of an understanding of who who human beings are. Right? To, you, it is to be in an in a liminal space. And, it, and in some of those indigenous cultures, I feel I feel like there is an express belief that um, people who are not on that spectrum that have some kind of queer identity, what we would call today a queer identity actually are something, there's something miraculous and supernatural about them because they're not normal like us. Right. Closer they, to, closer to yes, God. They might as well have divination or other powers because they have this unearthly thing about them. And, uh, and, and, and be, uh, better, better able to interpret, right? Supernatural signs or messages. And it, it, um, it separates them from earthly concerns, I guess, that they, they're not thinking about the same things as, as, as us, us meaning the regular straights in the village. Right, right. Even fishing nets, right, are beneath <laughs> their dignity. They, and, could, they could wear fish nets, I guess, if they're into that. And we think of purple as being a particularly, you know, purple and pink as being gay colors. Mm -hmm. And that has a tradition also going back to ancient times. And it is, um, you know, it's related to thinking of purple as being a color in between on a, on a color spectrum. It's, it is a color in between red and blue. And the, the identification of red with women and blue with men is, is more recent. Is that right? But, but the idea of purple as being an in-between state, um, and, in, and, and so hence a kind of magical color, uh, that has been transmitted like all the way through time. Kind of the ultimate sort of gay flag pink purple as a as a uh, an interim color are we gonna, interim but you know intermediary color. are we going to talk about the victorian era thing am i right that there's like a, an oscar wilde era thing of a green carnation as a kind of a signal so green was also uh, a gay color so much so that it uh, in the 20th century the idea if, if <laughs> there are so many of these signals that also become taunts and it's hard to know sometimes whether it started as a signal or started as a taunt. Huh. In the in the 20th century, there was a taunt, I guess, a, like a schoolyard taunt, that if you wore green on Thursday, it was a sign that you were gay. You there, think that might have actually started in the gay community? Hey, guys, we're all going to wear green on Thursday. <laughs> just, to, just to show solidarity. That one seems to me is clearly uh, it started out as a chant or a taunt. Although, uh, although relating it to the Victorian like use of green as a signal in Oscar Wilde's time, uh, a lot of the taunts do have do have some genesis at, in um, in an actual desire within a closeted gay universe to express, you know, uh, to to be able to send that message out and recognize non-verbal like it. Yeah. And, and, and receive it. it. Yeah. And that's the other key, right? That any gay signal also has to be recognizable within the culture and not recognizable outside of it because it is a, it is a, a safety 
concern, right? Yeah, I mean, you, it's not like a the Voyager record where you, you want it to be interpretable <laughs> to all. Like you could wear a shirt saying "I'm here, I'm queer," and there today that right. that that's not frowned upon. You know, in even the, in, but in 1990, that was a that was a radical act. Can you imagine somebody in your high school uh, doing that? I mean, were there out kids in your high school? Yes, uh, but only a handful, and um, and not out. They were out in the same they were, way. They were artsy. They were they were theater people. Yes. But but and and this is something that that started to happen. We we think of the gay liberation movement as starting at Stonewall, but of course, there have been um, there have been gay people present in culture f- from the time of the Greeks and theater people and traveling sort of minstrelly minstrelry and circus uh, cultures. Um, these were always safe. Havens for because again you're people. you're outside the mainstream you you know you can you're commenting on it through your art uh, it's not that different from a priestly class right and in here you're traveling around I guess which has other, you know the itinerant life has other advantages if you're if you don't feel welcome in the in the village and a lot of a lot of what we think of as uh, gay language gay culture starts or has roots in medieval theater language if if you think of the word Butch, for instance, it comes from the French word uh, bouche for goat, and it refers to um, the characters playing Pan in theater. Uh, the the Pan character is a goat, and that it becomes like a hyper-masculine uh, I guess, I guess Pan is person. The, the butchest of the gods. And then, and so butch, derived from that, starts to mean hyper-masculine. Huh. Um, uh, the whole, the whole world, the whole, the word camp to mean theatrical is referring to the, you know, the, the, the circus camp or the theater camp, because these were itinerant players. They came and they camped on the edge of town and, uh, and that's where we get the word camp. Even the word bad to mean bad, negative. Wait. Uh, that originally meant good, like Michael Jackson had it right. No, it didn't. Bad was an Anglo-Saxon uh, term for hermaphrodite. It's derived from the Anglo-Saxon word for hermaphrodite, and it became. They had a much shorter word for hermaphrodite than we do. Uh, the, yeah, well, maybe Our, it was, ours, ours is five syllables. Maybe it meant more to their culture than it does to ours. No, it was a longer word. It got shortened to bad. It was bad, and so it took on a negative connotation because it meant gay. And, oh, that's interesting. And so be, from it meaning gay. Bad is a slur? Yeah, that eventually it just became the you know, the English word for for bad. Like a like a seventh grader in 1989 saying skateboarding's gay. Yeah. Wow. It, it really is the original version of calling something gay to mean bad rather than to mean gay. That's crazy. Do you know about um, Polari? So Polari is a... Is a um, I was just a, thinking about the overlap between gay slang and uh, kind of theater performer carny slang. Polari is a wonderful sort of polyglot, um, like uh, argot. Yeah, uh, that was used in 19th century and early 20th century Britain, and it's a it's an amalgam of Yiddish and uh, Latin or or um, uh, what Italian? Yeah, I think and, it comes from parlare. Like it, you can tell by the name of it, it means talking in Italian. But it has a lot of Romani language yeah. in it, 
and um and it was it became a kind of cockney rhyming slang but within gay culture that was and and polari is a great sort of analog or an antecedent of hanky codes because it was a way to speak publicly uh, using terms that would be that would sound like gibberish uh, unintelligible to someone that wasn't in the culture you say bona tavada and, and that means good to see you. And you can you can kind of see now what the roots are. Oh, bona is good. Vada is like vid to see. To see. But the Italian roots have been twisted so that nobody knows what you're saying. And if you said it, if you if you greeted someone and had a suspicion and said bona de vada to them, and they said, "I'm sorry, what?" You knew. Oh, uh, that that at least Polari wasn't going to work. Um, but if they responded. And and often one person would say something in Polari that meant, you know, can I have a cigarette or something? If the other person offered them a cigarette, they wouldn't even have to respond. Just the just acknowledging that you understood what they meant was enough to communicate like, yes, I get you, right? Um, but you could actually converse in Polari. It 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 was its own Pig Latin or um or Cockney slang, sure. So that you could carry on a conversation in polite company or in public, and uh, and you know carry on a full a full conversation about what was happening, what you were seeing, other people that you knew, and it would be unintelligible to an outsider. Uh, Polari fell by the wayside, like so much of this coding did, as. As it became unnecessary. Gay liberation killed Polari. Uh, among other things. Now oh. there's just one 108 year old gay guy in Devonshire. Like it's like the <laughs> like the um, the indigenous woman who's the last one to speak some right. none of it language. Although a part of the contemporary gay identity, most most young queer people don't have any firsthand experience of any of this because they came of age in a time when it wasn't necessary to speak Polari. I mean, there's there's analogs if you're grown up in some small town in middle America, I, I assume. But you aspire to join a culture somewhere or at least or either join a culture or expand the culture to include your small town yeah. to be able to be here and queer and have them get used you to it. You don't have to use the Emerald City anymore, the metaphor of some dream place over the rainbow where I'll be accepted. Because now it's like, oh, I'll just go to any American city over 100,000 people. Right. But in the same way that the Welsh, for instance, are trying to reclaim their language and the and the Inuit are trying to make sure that their language doesn't die, there is a movement among contemporary, you know, young queer people to preserve things like Polari because they are uh, it's a, a gay language, right? It's a it it's more than just a novelty and and there is a sense of desire for there to be continuity in history. Plus that it wasn't an accident that they had their own language. It was a symbol of the, you know, what they had to overcome. Well, and all of the associate, I mean, all of the languages that play into building Polari, kind of like Yiddish, they are, um, they're evidence of who were members of that particular culture, right? Why is, why is Romani present in it? Well, because of the, you know, the proximity of theater culture and, um, and the, you know, and a gypsy culture or, uh, or of a, of a, like a working class Jewish culture, because gay culture often took place in those neighborhoods, right? The neighborhood by the docks or Harlem, for instance, or Greenwich village. I mean, these were neighborhoods 
the Lower East Side, the Bowery. They were neighborhoods that had um, associations with a lot of things other than gay culture. In fact, Broadway in Seattle um, in in the 1980s was was not the hustle-bustle center of Midtown that it is today. It was a... you know, it was, it was a, off the beaten track. Off the yeah. beaten track, right. Old warehouses and whatnot. Well, I mean, plus having a secret language is badass. I mean, see, speaking as a cis, cis straight guy who does not have a secret language, that's like my one, that's maybe my biggest <laughs> en- a big piece of envy of uh, early 20th century gay communities is having a cool kind of carnival midway argot. That's what I want. You and I have a little bit of a secret language. All you have to do is mispronounce words long enough, and then they become. That's how I found. That's how I find omnibus fans at the bar. There's no color of handkerchief, but if you just say "solviet" loudly enough, somebody might sidle up. I mean, our first piece of fan, uh, our first piece of fan merch was a picture of Stalin in the style of Patrick Nagel. With the word Soviet printed underneath it. My daughter still wears that shirt every day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone sent you that, right? Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful shirt. It's a one-of-a-kind item. Uh, in, the, in the 19th century in the United States, one of the, one of the, um, the thing about hanky codes is there's something about it that makes you want to believe that it was a longstanding practice used in gay culture back to, through the fogs of time. Well, the story's cooler. It's a very cool story. If it's, if if it's that's got, true, if it's got historical weight and and some of that desire. I mean, I don't want to know if hobo codes were just like something one guy made up. Like, I really want to believe that's a system decades in the making and a rich culture that I don't know anything about. Because then I feel like a, you know, I feel like an archaeologist. Yeah, and that's what we love about a lot of these things, right? Yeah. I mean, Yiddish went from being a a, a, a combination of Hebrew and German and. Uh, Slavic languages to becoming a full language that was spoken by um, millions of people. Cockney ram- rhyming slang. I mean, there just aren't that many people in the center of London that Cockney rhyming slang uh, went out and became uh, a- another another Latin language. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it be, it was really a a secret coded language. Same was true of Polari. But very limited expressive power, even compared to Polari. I mean, I'm sure there's a few hundred Cockney rhyming slang expressions that everybody knows, and that's about it. I keep wanting to do Cockney rhyming slang on Omnibus. I'm, I well, assume we, we will. Yeah. But like hobo codes, for instance, um, it only works when that knowledge is – when there's a, a large enough group of people that that knowledge can be imparted through osmosis or through – Culturally imparted, because there's no hobo academy. I mean, to be a hobo, all you have to do is go out and jump on a train. And if you see chalk marks on fence posts, you need an older hobo there to go, that means that the lady makes pie. You know, it's not it's not you a language. You can't go check out a book. And so it's very easy for that stuff to die, because all it takes is that generation that understands it to not share that with the people coming up, and it's, and it's gone. Hanky codes, there are... Uh, there are some convincing stories about where they might have generated. And the, and the one that, that gets reported on the most is that during the California gold rush in, the, uh, in 1849, there were so many men rushing out to San Francisco that uh, they would have at night, you know, after a hard day rocking that 
uh, that cradle. Is that what you call it? Rocking the old cradle. Rocking the gold pan. Uh, they would have barn dances or square dances, and there just weren't enough women to fill all the roles. And so if you were, um, if you were a man who wanted to, who was willing to or wanted to take the female role in a dance, you would wear a blue kerchief tied around your neck. And hmm. if you wanted to take the male role, you would wear a red kerchief tied around. So your blue neck. is female. It, it's a, it's the classic red state, blue state issue. Um, that's right. Feminized, uh, liberal culture. But that's the thing. You but it's would, the reverse of the baby, co- the baby coating is what I'm saying. It's the reverse of the baby coating. But also if you think of red state, I mean, red traditionally being the communist or left color but it's also red-blooded red meat it's, right. a, it's a fiery approach to life not the not the cool intellectuals of the blue states but if you had if you had switched red and blue states it would have made it all far too easy to yeah. you know to uh use red as a slur do you think that's why blue is the is the um male color in this or the blue is the female color in this hypothetical i think so right it, it 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 defangs it a little bit if it was if it was as simple as wearing red made you a bottom I think it, it it's not coded enough, right? It's not there's not enough of a um, secret language to that. You don't want it to be intuitive, right? So is and at the time, do we think that these uh, lonely prospectors would have insisted, uh, you know, like you might hear in certain kinds of cultures today, prison culture or whatever? Do you think they would have been like, no, there's nothing gay about this. We just don't have enough uh, ladies for the dances, or. I'm sure or did they was, know what was going on? I'm sure there was a lot of uh, uh, there was a lot of that kind of denial, but also a lot of. I mean, if you don't want to dance with a man, you don't have to. Um, uh, Just like today, to whatever degree bisexuality is uh, is prevalent in a natural. Uh, gold mining like culture, gold mining culture, <laughs> or just the bell curve of, of sure. people. If you put ten thousand people in a room, just what percentage of them are somewhere on a sliding scale of bisexuality or non-binary sexuality? I mean, I just think we're still trying to understand fully what what uh, what how you can make a scientific appraisal. How do you of measure that? that? Yeah, how, how, measure how pure is that number, and how much does it depend on things like acceptance and right. other cultural prevailing cultural winds? But in a situation where I mean, where you're just talking about square dancing, where there are clearly leading and following roles, um, and you're in a group where there's true. Square dancing is binary. It is. And also, in most cases, square dancing culture, square dancing costuming is very gendered. So if someone's, I mean, there are 200 people just swarming around uh, the center of a dance floor. If someone's coming at you and it, and you see pink frills, you know that they're going to all of mine left. You need to spot your new partner. Right. But if it's exactly right. But if it's just a bunch of cowboys all in flannel shirts, it's going to be needs, anarchy. There needs to be some kind of that won't be a square dance. It'll right? be some kind of oblong or nonagon dance. Here comes a blue handkerchief. I know what I you know. I know how to swing this right. partner. Uh, and then it it only follows that those codes would then translate into uh, a a, a sim, you know a set of signals to within a cowboy camp. And this story is very appealing because it puts the genesis like it, with a big group of men in the Bay Area, right? Where, where so the echoes to the 20th century are, are easy to see, right? And that became. Uh, that and that's so it's very nice to have that story to be able to tie it back 
But there isn't really any evidence that Hankies in particular had a, a any continuity as a as a way of signaling orientation or um or uh not proclivity, but sure, but, but yeah, proclivity D- different within interests and predilections, right? Predilection, exactly. So it might have. So we know this existed, but it might have just been a one-off, a, a coincidental ancestor of of modern hanky understanding. Yeah, although there have been sartorial codes for uh, well, all the way back to the to the color purple, but we know a lot of them, and I don't mean the novel, the color purple. I mean the actual color purple, right? But since Oscar Wilde, there are there have been quite a few sort of documented and understood codes. In the 1890s, um, there was uh, it was understood that red neckties. If you if you wore a red necktie, the ultimate flamboyance, it was a way of signaling um, without without being overt. Boy, that really. That really uh, re- uh, reinforces everything I believe today about college young Republicans. <laughs> That's right. The color red. Those red ties are exactly what I thought they were. But again, we think of it's it's one of the chauvinisms of modern of our modern life to think of everything earlier than about 1990 as uh, being a period of of complete not only closetedness but complete. Um, like a patriarchal hegemony over every aspect of cultural life. But of course you don't have to go much further back than the 1950s to find that that's not, that's has not been the case in 1869 in Harlem, uh, a black fraternity called Hamilton lodge started having drag balls Mm. in Harlem where uh, like, like, like drag balls today, an opportunity for men to dress as women and for everyone to, for a kind of bohemian set to have, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity to, to dress high and to let your, let your guard down and let it all hang out. It would be funny if people back then still used like uh, celebrity impressions as part of their drag act, you know, but in a time when you don't have Diana Ross or Dolly Parton or, well, Carol Channing, it makes you wonder who the mid 19th century celebrities would be. So they like, oh, look, it's uh, it's uh, James Garfield or whatever, it's James Buchanan's uh, no, well, that doesn't work either. It's Florence Nightingale, <laughs> it's too, too late. They're they're absolutely so celebrity has always been used as part of this coding. In fact, there's a there's a another language like Polari that's um. Uh, that's active in the Philippines called Swardspeak, mm-hmm. and Swardspeak is uh, is similarly a, a uh, an amalgam of different languages, including Tagalog and Spanish, and even Japanese and English, but also a lot of sort of celebrity and brand um, culture. That's part of camp, right? The, yeah, the, the new low stuff. You know when. Camp goes all the way around, right? Uh, for, it's to to it's so bad, it's good, right? I mean, yeah. when Susan Sontag came up with camp, it was like you know, Universal monster movies and Tiffany lamps, and uh, you know, it's it's new kind of brand name stuff that does not have the cachet of the antiques, right? Chanel, but, it's but still also just as fun. Also, um, what was that terrible liquor that 
Well, there's every every liquor brand, right, ends up being part of part of camp culture or part of celebrity culture. If they do it right, that's what marketing wants. But Hamilton Lodge and these drag balls turned into a play, you know, really significant events in New York. Uh, late 19th century culture where if you were anybody within the kind of bohemian cultural elite, if you were, and in, and in a way, like everything great about gay culture, it got co-opted by the straights because it seems like a lot more fun, but not co-opted, but it did, it did get invaded by. It gets mimicked and diluted. Yeah. And the smart set wants to be there in, sure. in a way, just like me in 1991, uh, it was. I uh, once I realized that I could be accepted there, uh, and that this was not something I could take back to my small town Anchorage friends. Uh, I was flattered to be included, you know, because because gay culture it does seem so much more uh, alive. Even the fear of being discovered or the fear it's of clandestine it is it's like prohibitions back, baby, and it makes you feel the. Uh, it's a it's a bonding experience to feel like you're all at risk, and of course that's the the thing about a straight person within camp culture. Like I can take off the hat yeah. and go home, um, but for the time that I'm there, you know, I feel as uh, I feel that simpatico, and that is the kind of privilege of being able to. Um, it's attention for the go. It's attention for the minority culture that has to decide how welcoming they want to be. Like, you know, how many bachelorette parties do you want at the gay bar before the vibe is just ruined? Right. Well, by the... Not that you would do that, John. No, not no, that, no, not no. that you were a bachelorette party. No, I'm the, I'm, I'm the, I'm not the bachelorette party. You were a good ally. You were, you're, you're, you were, you were fun to have around, I bet. And I still try to be. Everybody wants a, you know, it's okay to have an extra bear. <laughs> that's, you know, and especially a, a, a bear voyeur, which, uh, which, <laughs> and I'll get to, cause there is what, a hanky code for that. Yeah, What's your color? <laughs> uh, that would be a white velvet, white ah. velvet. And in my case, in the left pocket. I always wondered why you were wearing that every time we record. I'm like, am I not getting this? <laughs> by the, by the, um, the roaring twenties. If you think about roaring twenties culture, a big part of the style was a, a kind of um, like gender play. It's androgynous. There was there there was a, a, just just the act of cutting your hair as a woman and wearing a shapeless dress. Uh, what made that so radical was that it was there was and it was like overtly sure. androgynous. Women wear corsets. What are you doing? And it was also a time when there was a lot of drag. Performance, drag performance came out, uh, came you know out of the underground and became mainstream culture in the 1920s to a certain extent. In the in the um, the intelligentsia, the intelligentsia, and the and the and the wealthy, you know, the the cultural elite of the major cities. So it was they're, a, they're playing tourists, you know, to some degree, right? They are, but gay culture was was sort of widely accepted within this. Um, within this elite class. Hmm. And it was... I guess they're the ones who don't face consequences. They're powerful enough that if if their bar gets rousted or whatever... Right, and this is pre-rousting of bars, right? This was, this was the heyday. Everybody had money, and it also felt very modern. And like a lot of, uh, like a lot of moments in history where 
where modernism comes in. Modernism brings with it rationality. And then I'm talking about things from the 19th and 20th century, moments in time when, uh, when a kind of liberal mentality is ascendant. And we are not the first people to associate rationality and liberalism with sexual freedom and with cultural uh, broadening of our minds. Live and let live. Live and let live. And also, maybe there's something to it. You know, maybe uh, gay, maybe there's something that I didn't know about that gay culture is going to let me explore or experiment with. And then those periods are often followed by crackdowns uh, where... Uh, where a more conservative side of the culture that describes itself as the mainstream comes in and, and puts the kibosh on it. I mean, during the 1920s, those Hamilton, uh, Hamilton Lodge drag balls, which at this point had survived for 50 years wow. as a cultural force in New York, they were attracting 7,000 people to, uh, to these balls. That's funny. Cause we think of, the, we think of them now as kind of, small shadowy isolated things right this was a big deal it was a big deal and it was a big part of uh the levy district in chicago and the bowery greenwich village it's so much so that it was uh that that the media referred to it as the pansy craze and uh purple a purple flower it was a purple flower. i, I never put that together yeah. until now huh. uh the pansy craze and there were there were songs in the uh in the charts there was a song in the 1930s called let's all be fairies let's that was done in a very campy style, and this was like a, this was a popular recording. And is the idea that it's, were people, did people, were people not as naive as we now imagine them? Or do you think you, you write a song called Let's Not, Let's All Be Fairies because it's a coded kind of a thing where a small number of people will get the joke, but it might still be a catchy song Well, it isn't even a small number of people, right? Like Liberace started to perform in with candelabra and furs yeah. and and diamond rings in the late 40s and all through the McCarthy era of the 50s all through the Hayes code era but i feel like middle america was full of liberace fans who naively bought it they naively bought it but also what, there was a like a general understanding because there's always a desire to have gay they culture. everybody knows Liberace's set looks nicer than than uh, Arthur Godfrey's, right? And and I think every every middle American housewife at some point had a gay friend, and that and in a way that friend was their confidant, and they just I mean, everyone's in denial. The appeal is easier for women who who don't have something who don't feel anything threatening. Maybe. Right. Although their uh, women are very threatened by lesbians and we'll see that there's also coding that goes along uh, with lesbian culture, although l- less, you know, uh, less um, like uh, we haven't gotten yet to what hanky codes really are, but, but uh, you know, lesbian coding was much more like restricted to questions of butch and femme and whether those are relevant distinctions and then uh, over time, like, it became then an act of rebellion to rebel against the idea that butch and femme were not appropriate anymore. You know, there's a lot yeah. of lesbian code switching that happens. Um, but 
If you think about Paul Lynn in the center square of Hollywood Squares. And I do all the time. In the 1970s. And I do all the time. I do all the time, John. (laughs) And you think about his innuendo uh, and his flamboyance without being out, without being uh, specifically out, right? This isn't a situation where Rock Hudson is pretending to be straight his whole career yeah. and succeeding. This is a man who is... He could not be less butch. And he is at the center of American, like, middle-brow afternoon television culture. And earlier than that, on Bewitched and stuff. Like, that's a, you know, that was his sitcom uh, persona for decades. And it speaks to the fact that there that, that persona or a version of that, and as, you, as I, I hope we've described, like... Camp is performative, and those performances change depending on the culture and the time. But in 1970s America, that was clearly signaling to everyone involved a very definite sense of of culture, time, and place, and orientation. Even if you don't know the signifiers, you can tell it's 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 not on our spectrum. So, in a way, the 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 fiction that all those hundreds of thousands of Liberace fans were all naive and in the dark is somewhat of a self uh, flattering fiction for all those hundreds of thousands of housewives. Everyone, it's not, we're not as naive as we think. Hmm. And I say that as someone who is a big Judas Priest fan and never put together that Rob Halford was signaling in every word and deed uh, that he was part of a butch gay culture. I mean, all of his costumes, all of his, um, you know, I'm your turbo lover. I mean, uh, and I was rocking out to all that stuff and was in the dark. That means you dark. saw all the stuff, but thought of it as individual Rob Halford stuff. And I, I think that's what I'm saying about Liberace as well. People right. were like, look how, look at this strange man, but nobody said, look at this strange sexual orientation. It, uh, in a, in a way, Rob Halford's leather and studs were universal symbols of heavy metal and hard rock. So the fact that Rob also was wearing like a German officer's cap made out of leather, <laughs> uh, which was the little bit of step toward village people that he brought to metal. It was, it was le- I mean, Liberace's um, feather boas were not universal symbols of being a theatrical piano player. So, but I, but I, I take I take your point. I mean, there, it, again, it's on a spectrum. But in the nineteen seventies, and now we get to hanky at long last. In the nineteen seventies, when the gay rights movement in New York City, in particular, uh, in the aftermath of Stonewall, became a uh, became a culture that that wanted more visibility, and that and cruising, which was the the um, ancient practice of kind of trying to find a like-minded person in public parks. Imagine and a world without internet dating. Like, if you did not, if you were gay and wanted to meet a friend and did not know how, or didn't have a place where gay people congregated safely, uh, those places often were public, public places, parks. They had to be. And there had then had to be, it was it was crucial that there be a signal that you could send that was um, unambiguous to the intended, but 
and hanging out in the Ramble at Central Park at 2 a.m. is a pretty good signal because why else would you be there? It's a pretty good signal. As gay culture started to become more uh, above ground, there there were certain signs. And one of those important signs was keys, a set of keys on a clip. A, a key ring. But that, like wore, clipped externally to a... That you would clip to your belt loop. And if you clipped it to the right side of your pants, it meant that you were a bottom. And for futurelings listening in who aren't aware of uh, the top-bottom dynamic, it's... I mean, a, they don't even know bilateral symmetry. This might be hard to explain. That's right. It's a, hard to talk to a, to a sentient aspen grove and explain. Imagine different kinds of dominance and submission and when, in romantic activity. In a binary idea of sexuality, you think of submission as a female trait and, and domination as a male trait. And within that sort of binary uh, relationship, um, it evolves to be thought of as a sort of giving and receiving in any sexual exchange. It's very, very rare in sexuality that two completely equal partners meet in a, in a, in the center and perform an equal and reciprocal action and reaction where there Which is interesting. You'd think nature would have landed on that homeostasis, but somehow it did not happen. There's always a... Well, and it's because, you know, in, insemination is a giving. And to be inseminated is to receive. And so in nature, there's always going to be that. Uh, it's a one-way exchange of, of data. That's true. Uh, and to... Uh, and I think maybe we're, we're fast arriving at a place biologically... Where, where two eggs can be combined to form a, a new an, an omelet of a, a new viable person. Oh, oh okay. Uh, and and just there, there doesn't need to be that that ex, that one way exchange. But now, I mean, we're still stuck in a world where there's a there's a pitcher and a catcher. I like how we're stuck there. You're so sad. <laughs> You're so sad. No, it works where, for me. Where? Yeah, there are some upsides. I'm not sad. But uh, but speaking in speaking to a group of futurelings who are uh, who who, who had, are upset that men are still part of the who had two mothers and are just like God <laughs> listening to these guys talk uh, they don't even realize how short uh, how short their time they on have, Earth they is. have five more years of genetic uh, <laughs> usefulness uh, so that that giving and receiving then gets translated into a lot of different sexual exchange a lot of different sexual relationships are thought of in terms of one person is active, the other passive. One person is doing and the other is having done too. Um, and that is that is kind of crucial to the coding because you want, if you're someone who wants to do something to somebody, you want to find someone who wants something done to them. And you, if you're just meeting in a park or passing one another on the sidewalk and you all you have is a wink, um, you may find yourself then uh, having found a shady grove, having then to reckon with the fact that neither one of you wants to perform the other role. I mean, I 
I'm as far removed from this culture as can be, and yet I have. Uh, I don't want to hang out with friends who like me are a. I don't know where do we. Where do you want to eat? You know, because yeah. I'm. A, I don't know where do you want to eat, and as a result, my friends have to be. There's this new deli, right? Or there's this new pho place. Like, uh, I need to have a hanky code for you decide where we're eating lunch. <laughs> and and it's true that that I mean a lot of passive people can all hang out together, but. At a certain point, just being in a group of passive people is not enough. You need, you'll find that that you will seek out a a, a giver. Somebody's got to pick the restaurant, as it were. And a group of of guys all standing around, and they're all trying to be the alpha in a situation. You you realize that that this dynamic it plays out in life in in myriad ways. But especially if you are in a situation where you are seeking a sexual relationship and and it's a and this is this is where hanky codes are restricted to gay male culture, at least traditionally, because there is that aspect of gay male culture where they're trying to connect for a sexual encounter. And it isn't they're not trying to make a lifelong romantic encounter. It's not you're not looking for someone that's compatible with you. In terms of five years from now, like how are we going to pick what car we're going to drive? I mean, it's very difficult to put all that in a in a in a handkerchief. A handkerchief as you know, as a as a what a semantic tool. It's it's got limited communicative power. Well, you'll find less limited than you might think. That's what I want to know. So this is not just a top or bottom thing, right? The code is more complicated so than that? So it started as keys. And if you think about uh, the character of Schneider from the television show One Day at a Time, Which I with his, am. His, his signature key ring on his belt, this was a moment where 70s culture, uh, there were chain wallets, there were there was a kind of working class camp that that was part of mid-century, I'm sorry, mid-70s, uh, like post-hippie culture. And it's not that far from the village people aesthetic you were already referring to. Yeah. Construction workers and whatnot. To have your keys on the right side of the front of your pants or on your hip meant that you were on the receiving end of, or hoped to be on the receiving end of this relationship. And, and to have it on the left meant that you were on the giving. Can side. you imagine being a gay dyslexic in 1975? Uh, well, I don't think there's like, wait, key is, is this, is this my left or hold on, hold on, hold on. Turn around. So we're facing this. Oh no, I'm sorry. My mistake. So even as, so as a joke, a writer in the village voice, uh, referring to this, um, to this key signaling mm-hmm. said you know wouldn't it be more interesting if we used different colored handkerchiefs uh because there, you could express so much more than just this binary like top bottom are you aren't you and very quickly within that greenwich village culture a system uh but like it was but it was not organic. Generic. That's funny. Like it was it was kind of created top down. It was organic because the color coding kind of suggests itself. And the, here here is where if you're listening to the program with your teen and don't want to get into it with them, um, maybe send them to the store for a pack of cigarettes. But some of the, I mean, the codes, some of them follow naturally. So. What are the traditional colors? Red, blue, black, green. And these are ones that aren't, that that don't immediately 
connote. That's true. I cannot think, I cannot intuitively think of which kink I would associate with those colors. Right. As the colors got more sophisticated, I, I wonder if you can imagine what wearing a yellow handkerchief signifies. I hope it's not an Asian fetish, but I guess my other option is even worse. It's not, although, although, uh, <laughs> although that, it, that became kind of an evolution of it because, because hanky culture did evolve rapidly and situationally in, and regionally. Huh. But in the 70s, the, the main hanky signifiers, um, red being a major one, red hanky meant that you wanted to be penetrated or wanted to penetrate using the fist. Okay. And this is a this is a um a, a commonplace sexual exchange. Maybe not commonplace. I don't know how com- I mean, maybe not commonplace in uh, you know, in a Christian marriage, but it is a commonplace it it, it is it, it's not considered It's top 10 for sure. It's not a, a radical act in a sex positive culture. Um blue and 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 again, these mean different things um, different places. Why are you doing so many disclaimers? You think we're going to get sued? Well, because because I wore my red <laughs> hanky because I, and I didn't get fisted once. The number of futurelings who are listening to this who act actively came up in a culture where hanky signaling was active and significant and meaningful and and true versus the number of futurelings who are who grew up or came up in a time when hanky signaling was camp or was referential or was retro or became symbol became symbolic of liberation rather than actual actual actually symbolic within a closeted time did it get uh, did it get maybe i'm jumping ahead you haven't even done the colors but did yeah. it get appropriated and misunderstood by straight culture in the way that um like when i was a kid there was endless fights about which ear to right. wear an earring was the gay ear, and no one could quite, no one in schoolyard culture could quite uh, get that straight, which ear it was. This is the wonderful thing about the earring. Um, just as the right side, just as keys on the right side meant that you were a bottom, the earring on the right ear meant that you were gay. But no one could remember. And even no one could remember it on the schoolyard. If you had an earring in your right ear or left ear, which was it? I don't remember. And so its usefulness as a signal, which it was never really used. That's, that what, that's what I'm wondering. Right well, ear there's no earring actual, was not yeah. really used that way. Because if you're a man wearing an earring, you're, you've, already, you've already transgressed to the point that it's worth talking about at least. Like, hey, yeah. nice earring. What do you say? You know, throw a little Polari at him and see yeah. what happens. I mean, once you've decided to pierce one ear, it's kind of rounding air whether you want to start dating dudes. Yeah, and 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 we're only talking about a period between about 1985 and 1995 when uh, in 1985 it was plausible that a guy would get an earring to 1995 when anyone with an earring that was gay would be happy to tell you. Yeah. Um, but even reading about hanky coding within the context of gay memory people often get it wrong and say and get left right mixed up because the the 
instinct is sure. to think of right. Because most people are right-handed. Right. In the and same way that a similar percentage of the population is straight. And that right is dominant and left is passive. But yeah, it's right. opposite in the in hanky culture. And yet, even in, in people writing about it from within gay culture, it often gets transposed. And so all it has to do, like hobo signs, all it has to do is be transposed once wrong and have that be... Have that influence ten percent of the people, and all of a sudden, yeah. You, you, if the hobo sign for delicious pie also means barking dog in the next county over, right? That's trouble. And so, what it ends up being is, and I and this was true even in the seventies and eighties. Uh, what it ends up being is just an invitation to start the conversation, and that is what it always, in any context, should be. Because if you are wearing a um, a red handkerchief in your right pocket, that doesn't necessarily convey everything. You still need to talk about like what's going to happen. Let me just confirm. You didn't just happen to grab a handkerchief out of the top drawer, yeah. right? Like, and, do and, you know what red means? And once we get into that, like how much, where do you want this? I mean, do you want like roses or how do you want this to go? Black handkerchiefs are a, 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 are a symbol of S&M. Uh, and black means sense. Black hard S and M, whereas a gray handkerchief is sort of lighter bondage, and I uh, and that is again it involves a lot of gray area. I think light bondage is understood to mean like tie me up and but scarves. spank me. It's scarves and not yeah and chains and ball S and M is a lot more like pain play and so forth. Uh, blue, depending on different. Colors of blue, like there's light blue, there's robin's egg blue, there's medium blue. Oh no, this is like paint samples. Navy blue. I have to Air understand the difference between sky and robin's egg now. And they're all there. There are a lot. Or there of could these be dire consequences that are like role playing, like medium blue. You're either a, you're either pretending to be a cop or you're pretending to be somebody that wants to get arrested by a cop. There's like I'm a pilot. I love pilots. There's I'm a sailor. I love sailors. So it's role playing. A lot of that. Um, there's uh there's everything that you could imagine and and yellow and brown are are ones exactly that exactly what you think more what you think green handkerchiefs typically were used by hustlers or it was a sign that you were that this was a for uh, green money yeah right a Got for it. pay kind of uh exchange although then it also extends to kind of daddy uh, orphan. The the age difference becomes more important than the financial relationship, right? And then it's sort of then it, then as the color gets more olive drab, you get like I'm an army man and uh, and mm. you know I'm a private here or whatnot. So if you find the if you find an example of if you find it like let's call it a table of hanky code meanings, it's clear that it became a um. It became a fun thing for people to to pretend. There's a thing that once something becomes a system or a list, people, I mean, I'm a geek who enjoys just the classification system itself. And I don't right. think that's that uncommon, you know, that people want to know, oh, the 10th anniversary is tin, even, you know, even if that's some made up arbitrary thing. Exactly. Pe people take pleasure in the fact that there is a system and you could learn it and know it and show off about it or correct people about it. If you, if you believe that, of the like nine colors that might be described as pink, that each one of those nine shades 
has a different slightly different kink. Well, and not even slightly different, but entirely different meaning. Oh, that, that's a lot of risk then. Uh, right. It's just not possible to use it that way. But it became a kind of, and in a way, making the table and putting colors to them became a way to divide up and and explicate and make explicit all the different things. You might not have heard of some of them before until, I, you, until you saw the system, just I, like you didn't think of that color for your bedroom until you saw the paint chip. I did not know that you could be into armpits enough that you would want someone else to know it, let alone that that was symbolized by the magenta hanky. So if I had a magenta hanky in my left pocket, rear pocket, uh, I would be saying, please lick my armpits. I guess we hadn't yet come come up with, what is it, rule 34? What, whatever the dictum is that, you know, whatever exists, it's a kink for somebody. Somebody has has made a, um, a porn about it on the internet. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and orange ultimately means uh, I'm into anything, anytime. Orange? Orange. Huh, who knew that orange? Because orange is like the the alert emergency color. Orange is like go for it. Uh, fast forward it, to now, right? It really but, makes you think. Uh, makes you rethink Donald Trump, I guess. Ooh, dark or, or Ernie? <laughs> who, are, who are the most famous orange Americans? Yeah, I guess. I guess Ernie it's, and Donald Trump. Those are the two. The two most famous. Oh, uh, George Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, in contemporary. Gay and queer culture, hanky coding has at long ago stopped being um, actually meaningful outside of a kind of fulsome street um, play, costuming play. Fashion, yeah. Nobody really knows what it means. Nobody well, also, can nobody even... has handkerchiefs anymore. Well, not, maybe not you. People started talking. Well, I mean, I'm sure you have six drawers full. <laughs> well, I when, could, do you want me to start pulling them out of my sleeve? When everybody was talking about how in the pandemic, you know, you got to um, just first of all, take a, a bandana or a handkerchief. And I'm thinking... Where am I going to get a bandana or a handkerchief? I'm, I'm going through my kid's costume trunk. It's so funny. Going I, through Disney princess costumes to see if there's a cowboy bandana in there. I have 80 bandanas at least. You're the problem then. Yeah, You're hoarding them. No, no, no. They, they, these are all vintage In a just world, collected. in a more just animal farm, you would have 40 and I would have 40. Why do you have 80 and I have none? <laughs> I'll, I'll loan you some. Thank you. Uh, there is a lot of... In in contemporary culture, where inclusiveness becomes the um, is the watchword, there has been within queer culture an attempt to say that hanky culture needs to be expanded to be inclusive. Yeah, it creates it creates categories and categories by necessity limit, right? Right, but within you know within strictly gay male culture, there's pushback on that idea because this was something that was in that was intrinsically about expressing a desire for a specific kind of sexual exchange and to have a hanky that says I'm asexual or non-binary is to, they already have that. You can just stay home. Right. Is to dilute or, or, you know, you don't need a hanky. Um, that, but, but the pushback on that is hankies are now just conversation starters and any kind of symbolism that, that enables you to start a conversation about sexuality and if hang, if flagging, which is what wearing a hanky is called, if that's an opportunity, um, didn't flagging just become digital? Like now we still we still have hanky codes. It's just a matter of this, these are my search criteria when I open my uh, my whatever my app is. That's the thing is that there is no need for it, and so it becomes now 
a um a way of a way of signaling where there isn't where where you're signaling not from a not from a place of fear right the to to be able to signal to wear a flag as a not just a point of pride and of course the rainbow flag we think of as being one that encompasses diversity that's every hanky but it's really every hanky and to wear it without needing to to wear it without it being a, a a surreptitious signal. It's the opposite of how the coding started, and and it's why I think you can have six hundred different colors, and have that be, um, have that be appealing to a young queer person who never had to use it, and it becomes a it's just a it's a thing of fun or or can be. And that concludes hanky codes. Entry 566.EZ1321, certificate number 34366, in the omnibus. Now, listeners, I'm currently wearing a light blue polka dot handkerchief on my right side, which means uh, I'm a Twitter user. John, for a long time, did not. He had to put his back in when his R2D2 tweet went viral. You've had to add a second hanky because you were just wearing your, your red plaid Instagram hanky. Yep. John is at John Roderick on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Ken Jennings. Jointly, we are at omnibus project on all these awful awful social media platforms mm. uh we receive email at the omnibus project at gmail.com uh feel free to tell us what we got wrong on this show that's what it's for mm-hmm. uh you could send us physical mail send me your hankies that you that you Ken doesn't have any hankies i don't I, when the box of hankies arrives Months from now, and we've forgotten what it symbolizes, I will say, wow, look at those cool hankies, and I will try and claim that they're for me. So make sure you put a note in there. These are for Ken. These are Ken who doesn't have any hankies. Uh, I did buy face masks, though. You got to have... Costco just announced today they're not going to let shoppers in without face masks. Do you have any N95s? Or I don't need N95s. No, I'm, not, I'm not like wandering Mad Max Earth. I just want to. I just want people not to give me the stink eye. I just want to look like I'm wearing a mask. You got to wear a mask, yeah. That's got to be, and it's got to be better than just that, like a. And I'm just staying cowboy away. Cowboy hanky. And I've been staying away from people, so I'm not even worried about the mask as some any kind of tool of public hygiene. I just don't want um, woke Seattle sneering at me because I'm not doing my part. Yeah, I, I'm doing that by not going anywhere. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that accomplishes the same thing. Um, so, if you would like to mail us such things, what do we have in the mailbag today? Uh, Nick sent me his full collection of chick tracks. I opened up this priority mail envelope and it was just stuffed to the gills with chick tracks of, of lots of different um, eras and it looks like a few of the Spanish language ones. He says, um, if any of them are rare and I sell them, remember me, but I'm not going to sell them, Nick. Don't worry. And he also wants me to go to his trivia night at the Itasca Community Library in Chicago area. Uh, I'm not sure if I will be doing that, but, um, and look, the back has trivia ideas. Oh. I don't think he knows he sent me this. Five senators whose religion is unaffiliated, hmm. state capitals that are also the largest city. This must be trivia ideas for his trivia thing. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't give them away. State capitals that are also the sit- the state's largest city? The state's most popular this city. This came up yesterday uh, between us and my family. I know Boston 
is uh, Massachusetts's largest uh, city and also state capital. The easy ones jump out like Phoenix, Atlanta, Indianapolis. There is only one state where like the 20th biggest city is the capital, and it's Washington. Right. There are so many cities in Washington bigger than Olympia, more more than any other state has. Is that right? Yeah, it's like the 16th most populous city in the so state. So Bellingham is larger than Olympia? By quite a bit. I had no idea. And Everett? Like a lot of suburbs. Kent is much oh. bigger than Olympia. So is Renton. Huh. So is a lot of the east side. Yeah, but Olympia is where Slater Kinney came from. So what does Kent have to say? And it's very smart to pick uh, an existing prominent street sign to name your band after, because then you don't have to wait for them to name a street after you. <laughs> it's already there. <sighs> anyway, thanks for the Chick Tracts, Nick, or the Nick Tracts, Chick. Chick. Uh, you can uh, really, the, the you can congregate with like-minded fans. We have our own kind of hanky coding which is uh, the word futureling. That's how you know you should find your people on Facebook or Reddit. I think there's a Discord now. Um, and the number one thing you can do to perpetuate the omnibus, if you enjoy it, is to contribute at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, if you were offended by today's episode and want fewer episodes where John talks about fisting, you can make a <laughs> negative donation and then we have to send you money. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, when we still had a memory of a time when sexuality was a thing fraught with peril, rather than just a joyful exchange of... Your future fun, good time orgies. Yeah, just all of the things that, that, that uh, Futurelings may want to give and receive without all this crazy energy around Hon honestly it. like odds are we're talking to some totally sterile 2001 future that <laughs> thinks it's all of this is gross <laughs> like just how i didn't want you to talk about fisting like they didn't want us to talk about any vanilla stuff either because like no uh-uh well what's interesting you and and i i didn't actually say it in the show but during the depression immediately after the crash of 29 there was a huge backlash against gay culture against flappers and uh, drag. Like they tanked the market? Well, they did. I mean, the, or not, not that Wait, they did, but that... Ball that, culture caused the depression? That the depression saw all that extravagance and, and in particular, the kind of gay um, liberation as emblematic of decadence. And that decadence was what brought about the fall. And so there was... A real crackdown, a police crackdown, the Hayes Code, all of this came into play as a as a conservative reaction to all the licentious, yeah, the libertine twenties, uh, and that persisted. Then why do we say the gay nineties? Uh, it should be the gay twenties. That's the eighteen. It, it should be the roaring nineties and the gay twenties. That's my suggestion. Hmm. Well, yeah. I have some notes. All right. On, Since we are writing the history, we can do whatever we want, right? And also, we, we don't really have those anymore where we have labels for decades, and I miss that. Now we just say, I love the 90s. I oh, love the may. 80s. What, 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 what we say the, the me decade for the 80s, what or the wait, 80s 70s. Be the me decade? No, the 80s were the, we say this the Reagan cocaine era. cowboys. Oh, Reagan era, right. And then the 90s were the grunge years. Yeah, like eight months in 1993 <laughs> was the grunge years. Anyway, we have no idea how long this totally broken civilization survived, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, sort of. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry 
in the Omnibus.